earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Today is session 23 in our current series, Oh, That Verse Means That?, Throughout these sessions, we've taken a closer look at an array of popular Bible passages we believed meant one thing, but are fast discovering they actually mean something quite different, aren't we? Did you ever imagine there'd be this many misunderstood or misapplied Bible verses? Well, today's session is called, Blessed is Who?, and our jumping-off point will be Matthew 5.3, which triggers a string of what have come to be known as the Beatitudes. And the podcasts of these sessions are posted at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. And friends, allow me to reinforce a statement I've been sharing. The Bible really does have a story to tell us. In fact, it's crying out, screaming out to tell us its story. But sadly, we pastors, teachers, and preachers, and even average Christians tend to make, even force, or manipulate the Bible to tell our story. Whether we do this knowingly or unknowingly, I'll still say, shame on us. And please allow me, friends, to drive home another point I've been making. In Second Peter 1, 20 and 21, we're told the Holy Spirit is the author and inspirer of our Judeo-Christian scriptures, our Bible, if you will. So, friends, if that's true, isn't the Holy Spirit deserving of our respect as we read God's Word? Isn't God's Word deserving of greater respect rather than just cavalierly spouting off what we think a Bible verse means? Well, today's verse, Matthew 5, 3, launches a string of pearls, as one Messianic scholar put it, and portrays it this way. Rabbi Yeshua, Jesus, is stringing these pearls for us. Each is more precious than gold or diamonds. It's not a set of rules so much as a spiritual vision of the restored heart and mind of those who have trusted in him. And before we go any further, friends, our goal in today's session, as well as in our next session, will be to unmask, unravel, even unpack this curious biblical word, blessed, a word we westernized Gentile Christians have imposed meanings on that both the Old Testament God followers and the New Testament Christ followers would barely recognize, primarily because both the Old Testament Hebrew word and the corresponding New Testament Greek word have a range of meaning and understanding so that no single English word adequately functions as a parallel term. So right at the get-go, we've got to throw on our detective's cap, pull out our trusty pocket magnifying glass and look closely and carefully at our entry word blessed which appears nine times in the verses three through eleven 
Otherwise, we could be thrown off track and default to speculating its meaning rather than being good Bereans searching the scriptures and seeing if what we think is actually what the text is saying. Well, first on our observation checklist is recognizing that our New Testament word finds its origin in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms, beginning with Psalm 1. In Hebrew, blessed is an intensive exclamation, and therefore would be best expressed in English by the phrase, Oh, blessed! Or better yet, oh, the bliss of! So, when we read the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 3-12, we must do our best to think with a Jewish mind and hear with Jewish ears. This blessed or blissful state is such only because this particular person identified is living in a right covenant relationship with God. Friends, I think we get thrown off track by the fact that blessedness or blessing may be seen in two ways in the scriptures, the second way being our most familiar way, that being receiving blessings from God out of his sheer love and grace or his rewards for our obedience to his commands or plans. Therefore, we may naturally read into these Beatitudes that this blessed state is conferred on us by God because of something we do or have done. However, the precise opposite is true here, friends. Interestingly, both in Psalm 1 and in Matthew 5, 1 through 10, the verb is absent, although it's appeared in our English translations. In Psalm 1, the verb is, is absent. And in Matthew 5, 1 through 10, the verb are, is absent. This augments the fact that the psalmist and Jesus in Matthew 5 are declaring and portraying a present reality existing side by side and not a result In other words, friends, a cause and effect relationship is not being described. And in the Beatitudes of Matthew 5, Jesus is actually describing people who are already in a condition, despite their economic or cultural status in the empire. And this has incredible cultural significance. Because both in the pagan Greco-Roman world and in the Jewish religious world, there existed a belief that those who were poor or sickly were automatically cursed by the gods or by the God of the Hebrews. We get a little glimpse of this in John chapter 9, the account of Jesus and his disciples meeting a man born blind. What's the first question the disciples ask Jesus? Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What's implied here is that God has cursed this family for their sins, and he's brought blindness upon their son as a result. Well, Jesus was quick to correct that false idea, wasn't he? He quickly comes back with, Neither this man nor his parents that he was born blind. Ah, listen to his next line, friends. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Wow! Not only was this man and his parents not cursed by God, but God was actually going to display his miracle working power in and through this man. Case closed. So here we see that even Jesus' disciples were influenced by the idea that present suffering and affliction were the direct result of sin. 
We'll see shortly that these Beatitudes not only present traits that are expected in all Christ followers, but also become a slap in the face to the Jewish religious leaders. I call them the JRL for short. In the fifth Beatitude, Blessed are the Merciful, we see a direct slam at the Pharisees. As they cared little for the downtrodden, they showed no sympathy, loving kindness, nor mercy to the afflicted or who were living with misery. In Matthew 23, amid the string of woes, Jesus throws at the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Proverbs 21.13 tells us, Whoever shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. Psalm 37, 21 and 26 say in part, The righteous shows mercy and gives, and the righteous are always merciful and lend freely. The Hebrew root for mercy comes from the word for womb. To have mercy or compassion then means we have love for others equal to that of loving an unborn child. Wow! And friends, is also a very significant first century cultural connection here. In the pagan Roman world, mercy, in other words, pity or compassion, was a despised character trait. Friedrich Nietzsche, 19th century German philosopher and atheist, denied that there was any real substance to traditional moral and religious values. He also denied that societal values had any objective validity or that they imposed any binding obligations upon us. In our context of the Beatitudes, Nietzsche would say that there's no place or need to extend mercy to anyone. So we see that Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, beginning with the Beatitudes, are counter-cultural. His kingdom is an upside-down kingdom, a topsy-turvy kingdom. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount represents a transposed value system. In other words, what the kingdom of the world highly esteems is of little value to God. And conversely, what God's kingdom highly values is mostly scoffed at by those living in the world's kingdom and operating under the world's system. Friends, can you see now that this is precisely the scandal of the gospel message? Paul sums this up beautifully in 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Quoting Isaiah twenty nine fourteen, Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The scandal of the gospel message is that mercy and compassion are to become trademarks of Christ followers, and servanthood is an absolutely necessary character trait for all of us. Jesus reiterated this in Mark 10, 42 through 45, when he said, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, in other words, pagans, domineer over them, and their people in high position exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Rather, whoever wants to become prominent or great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Friends, we who live in the upside-down life now will live the right-side-up life in the heavenly kingdom and vice versa. Those regarded first in this life will be regarded last in the life to come, and those regarded as last in this world will become first in the world to come, the heavenly kingdom. You're probably wondering if I gave up on Matthew 5, 3, right? Well, I didn't forget. In fact, this comprehensive backstory and cultural connections are absolutely essential for understanding and properly interpreting the Beatitudes, which begin the Sermon on the Mount. The very first line, Matthew 5, 3, begins with, and I'm going to use the words first century meanings as I quote it, Oh, the blissful state, the enviable, fortunate, and favored position with God, the spiritually prosperous, are the poor in spirit, that is, those devoid of spiritual arrogance, realizing their spiritual poverty, rating themselves insignificant, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Now, friends, the full impact of Jesus' words are not yet fully realized by us, as there's another connection that needs to be made. The spiritually proud and arrogant Pharisees, who looked down on others, believed that the worldly prosperous and healthy individuals were blessed by God and had an automatic shoe into the coming kingdom of God, whereas the poor, the destitute, and the sickly were obviously cursed by God and not worthy of entering into the coming kingdom of God like they were. Imagine if you constantly heard this about yourself and you were led to believe that you had no chance of making it into the coming kingdom of God, that God didn't even listen to you. After all, in John 9.31, the Pharisees boasted that God does not listen to sinners. And then you heard Jesus tell you, hey, you who are recognizing your own spiritual poverty, who lack spiritual pride and arrogance like your religious leaders, you are already favored by God in an enviable and fortunate position, blessed by God himself. The coming kingdom of heaven is already yours and belongs to you even now. So rejoice! Friends, are we beginning to see that these Beatitudes are a spiritual slap in the face to the proud and arrogant Jewish religious leaders, and that God is already favoring the lowly, the humble, and those with a contrite spirit who mourn over their own sins? This is perfectly portrayed in Jesus' comparison of the Pharisee and the tax collector when they both went to the temple to pray, recorded in Luke 18, of which I'll just quote the Pharisee's prayer for now. Please read the full account on your own. 
the Pharisee stood up and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But friends, I will tell you Jesus' clincher to this comparison, which reiterates this upside-down kingdom, this topsy-turvy kingdom, God's transposed value system. Jesus summed it all up with, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Well, friends, this first beatitude is actually a condensation of a few Old Testament passages. In fact, every beatitude has a corresponding Old Testament passage, and I believe Jesus knew this, and in his sermonizing, in each beatitude, he encapsulates a truth from their Hebrew scriptures, building a bridge to these foundational truths. So, regarding the poor in spirit, there's Isaiah 57:15. I, Yahweh, live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah 66, 2. These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. And we have Psalm 34, 18. The Lord, Yahweh, is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Friends, some Messianic teachers as well as some Christian scholars have suggested that these Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 are presented by Jesus in a purposefully progressive order. In other words, each blessed declaration prepares the hearer for the one that will immediately follow. So, the poor in spirit become mourners over their own sinful condition. This then humbles them, and they care about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and find righteousness in the sacrifice of their Messiah, who showed them mercy. This leads them to become merciful themselves, and they then see beyond appearances and seek to extend mercy to others. Because mercy has dominated their disposition, hatred and strife grieves their heart, so they grow to become peacemakers and seek reconciliation in their and others' relationships. This behavior and passion to live like and imitate Jesus ultimately causes them to be misunderstood, mistrusted and mistreated, so therefore they become subject to persecution. But in the end, and here's the reward, friends, they gain the kingdom of God. Can we see now why one Messianic commentator viewed this Sermon on the Mount as Rabbi Jesus stringing these pearls for us? Each is more precious than gold or diamonds. It's not a set of rules so much as a spiritual vision of how the restored heart and mind of those who have trusted in him, in other words, Messiah Jesus. Can we also see now, friends, that Jesus intentionally begins his Sermon on the Mount with establishing the absolute necessity of humility as a character quality? 
This ran counter to the prevailing Greco-Roman cultural mindset that humility was not a desirous quality to pursue. Pride and arrogance characterized the fallen human condition and reared its ugly head in the first century Roman Empire. The sinful drive to dominate or exercise control over others is now overcome by embracing Jesus' own humble character. And this is why he taught and counseled his disciples by comparing the pagan way of exercising authority with his way of servant leadership, as I shared earlier from Mark 10. Friends, if there's one thing we can count on, it's the fact that there'll be many surprises in the world to come. Those who were looked at as first in this life will be regarded as last in the next. And those who were looked at as last in this world will become first in the world to come. Yes, indeed, God's kingdom on earth is certainly an upside-down kingdom, isn't it? Friends, please, please let this sink deeply into our minds that those of us who live the upside-down life now will live the right-side-up life in the heavenly kingdom. And those of us who choose to live the right-side-up life now will live the upside-down life in the heavenly kingdom. I'm convinced, friends, that Jesus' design for the kingdom of God on earth is that it's supposed to be a redeemed community of the righteous who now practice sacrificial love for the welfare and honor of others. And Jesus himself is the true source of this kingdom, which he elaborates on in his Sermon on the Mount, beginning with the Beatitudes. Trust me, friends, living this kingdom way is quite a challenge, isn't it? So much so that sadly some well-meaning Bible scholars insist that Jesus' sermon on the Mount isn't for our time. Rather, it belongs to a future kingdom. Well, I respectfully disagree with these commentators. Jesus clearly teaches his Sermon on the Mount as if it is a present reality by his use of the Hebrew literary device known as intensive exclamation. Jesus' very presence signaled the initiation of the kingdom of God. When he began preaching, one of the first things he said was, Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. Jesus' followers initially and mistakenly interpreted this statement as the kingdom of heaven invading the earthly kingdom of the Roman Empire with the intent of overturning it. Jesus actually taught that the kingdom of heaven would not be a movement that transforms an earthly nation into a mighty army for God, but rather a spiritual movement that transformed the hearts and lives of those who were crying out for God's reality to come near to them. Friends, when Jesus showed up in the first century Greco-Roman world, Israel was experiencing a time of radical dissatisfaction, both in life under the oppressive rule of Rome and in their religious life ruled and regulated by their legalistic Jewish religious leaders. This breeding ground was the perfect time for the suffering servant Messiah to appear as predicted by Isaiah 53. This Messiah, contrary to popular opinion, would bring deliverance from sin and poverty of spirit to the human heart. Well, friends, let me close out part one of today's topic with my personal English rendition of the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 3 through 11, and we'll pick up where we left off in our next session. The kingdom of heaven already belongs to those who recognize their spiritual poverty, so God classifies them as blessed. 
Comfort will come to those who mourn over their sins. God qualifies them to be labeled blessed. It is meek people who will gain the promised land, and God categorizes them as blessed. Satisfaction comes to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. God will call these blessed. People displaying mercy can count on mercy coming back to them. God will consider them blessed. God will welcome the pure in heart into his company. He defines them as blessed. Children of God will have the reputation of being reconcilers, peacemakers, if you will. They will clearly be known by God as blessed. The kingdom of heaven awaits those who, because of their righteous stance, suffer persecution. That's not all they're known for. God knows them as blessed. A great heavenly reward is waiting for those who've endured insults, false accusations, and evil treatment because of their avowed connection to me. Rejoice in this hope, for you are not alone. You are blessed, just like the prophets of old who went before you. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're nearing the end of today's program, which will close with an email where you may write me. One listener wrote in regarding session 22, someone's knocking at the door with this comment. Thanks for sharing another interesting and thought-provoking message. May we all search our hearts and minds to find out where Jesus is in our lives. Is he knocking and we are too busy to let him in? Or is he already in but shoved aside and only dusted off and consulted when we want a favor? Well, thanks for your insightful feedback. And remember, friends, the podcasts of all these sessions are posted at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. And please keep in mind, friends, that A Word from the Word is a listener-supported program, so please consider financially helping to keep A Word from the Word on the air with your kind support. Just email me for the details. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.